This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. It's another episode of the Equalizer podcast as we creep toward the end of June. And when we get back next week, there will be actual NWSL games to talk about. The Challenge Cup begins on Saturday in Utah and a little bit of a different twist on the pod today. I'm Dan Lawletta. I've given John Haller in the weekend off. Rachel and everybody else on the Equalizer team has the weekend off. But I've got two special guests. First, Neil Morris, who covers the North Carolina Courage locally. They are, of course, the team that has dominated this league for the last three years as North Carolina. Before that, won the NWSL championship as the Western New York Flash. And after that, Julia Poe, who covers the Orlando Pride. They'll be trying to come at this from the opposite end of the table. They finished on the bottom in 2019. They've done some good things in the offseason, but we'll see what Julia thinks about whether they've got enough time in this shortened tournament to make an impact Four games is all we're guaranteed. Let's start with Neil Morris. And Neil, uh, how are you? And uh, how have you been handling these three months of no soccer locked in your house? Maybe not locked in your house, but uh, you know, how's, how's it going the last couple of months for you? Oh, it's been a combination of, of boredom and change uh, professionally and, and personally. But, you know, from a soccer point of view, it's it's, it's been a bit of a, a shift. You know, you get into the annual rhythm of these things, and uh, when it when it gets disrupted, and you don't know if or when it's going to come back, or what form it's going to come back. You know, we have this tournament coming up, but it's you know it's happening over there somewhere. So sort of the the normal beat writer, local angles, marketing type thing is is has it come back. So while the India sales coming back, it still feels remote in a way. The the games are remote. You know, media is still not allowed to go to training. Any interviews have to be over the phone. So in a way, it's still a bit odd. And I was, I was, you know, I made it out to, for the first day of training back in February, uh, and felt like I was, and, and actually made it back several days later to do an extended interview for, with Haley Mace for a feature I wrote for Equalizer. And it felt like I was kind of, you know, interloping a little bit, being there so early, I usually try to wade in uh, as the as the preseason goes along. But I'm glad I did because it may turn out to be the only personal interaction I have with the team this year. And I guess you picked a good year to get out there early. And uh, that Haley May story was this year. That feels like eons ago. That the Haley yes. May story. Yes. Yes, it does. Um, what can you tell me about the mentality of the team? I feel like we talk about mentality more with the courage than any other team. Um, and I, you know, I've been ver- really impressed the last couple of years at just how, not, I mean, we know they're good, but every week they're just dedicated to being great on that given day. Um, are you able to get a sense 
of whether or not this team is kind of on a similar wavelength to the last several. I would be surprised if they weren't simply because you know, Paul Riley will find a way <laughs> he, he will find some angle or some way to motivate the team and focus them and make them feel like they're, it's us against the world underdogs, if you will. So, you know, while I'm not privy to the, the inner workings of, of this year's team, I, I'm, I would be shocked if the, if it wasn't there. You know, there's been some shifts in personnel, so it's a little bit of a different dynamic this year. You don't, you know, McCall Zerboni has been sort of the, I used to call her the, the team mom. Uh, she's not there anymore. Uh, you know, Heather O'Reilly, uh, is, is retired and act an actual mom now. And, and you've had a few other departures. So there's probably a little bit of a different dynamic, but the core is still there. The 2015 core, as we call them, are, are still there. And those folks who were once uh, the fresh faces of the league are slowly becoming, you know, grizzled veterans. So, uh, I, I'm quite sure, especially with sort of the, sort of the insulated environment, maybe the hyper insulated environment that the, the courage have had since they resumed training that, that the, that the focus is there some way, somehow. Um, and it's all variations on a theme. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's reasons that we can discuss this if, if you like, why I think there's sort of this buy-in from a team mentality point of view when it comes to the courage. And, and the way that Riley accesses that shifts slightly from year to year. You know, he, he kind of poke, probes and prods and figures out kind of what the dynamic of the year is. Uh, whether it's, you know, teams coming back from adversity or players who have to come and go because of international competition and how he motivates some of the, the non-national team players. And there, there's different ways he goes about, about it from year to year. And I'm sure this year is a, he's seeing it as another challenge. And that's really, you know, when it comes to a team like the Courage that wins all the time, that's how you keep it fresh. He, he finds the challenge of the year. Uh, last year it was World Cup. Players going, players coming back, how you deal with that. That whole lay the tracks mantra that he had last year was all built around that. So that was the motivating factor. This year I'm sure it's everything. You know, the lack of game, the lack of games, the, the pandemic, the, the, the influx of some new players, uh, the, the, sh- the short tournament, and I'm sure he's convinced them that everybody thinks they're going to lose that tournament. So, you know, it, it's all variations on a theme, but I suspect that, you know, at its core, it's still that same general idea. Now, I don't know if you watched the last dance about Michael Jordan and the 98 Bulls and that, how it was kind of known going into that season that that team would be broken up. I don't know that the courage get broken up after this, but there's now absolute for certain expansion coming and the courage can't possibly keep their group together as is for another season. Is that part of the motivation? You think that this is the last year that this core can possibly be together as we've known it since we got to North Carolina? I think at the periphery, that's one factor. I don't think that's, that's the main thing because I mean, quite frankly, I think. The team played last year believing there was going to be expansion last offseason. Uh, and so there was already a little bit of an idea that at least one of their, their stalwarts, and I think everyone has an idea of who that player would be, 
might not be around for 2020. And so there was a little bit of thought. And Abby, I think Abby Ursic has said this. You know, we always we played kind of under that shadow last year. Um, and you say for sure there's going to be expansion next year. <laughs> Are we certain? I mean, do we know. Well, that's 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 NWSL <laughs> for sure. That's exactly. So, but but that aside, um, I, I think they've already sort of dealt with that in a way. Um, and so. It, but I don't, I don't get the sense that that by itself is a motivator. Like, let's do one more for the team. I, I didn't get that sense last year. I think it's still, there, there's, there's kind of three things that this, that their sort of team unity is built on. Um, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll go through them quickly, although I could elaborate on each one at length. You know, the, one is that the core of this team came in in 2015. To a miserable experience. <laughs> the, the, the core of this team, which is still around, uh, lost their joy for soccer in 2015 when they and were. And that was off field were, as well as just the fact that they weren't very good. Everything. Right. Everything. And you had a swath of players who were either going to retire or try to leave the team after 2015. Paul Riley comes in and turns everything around. I mean, Jessica McDonald's made no bones that she was going to retire until she found out. Riley, who had coached her to her best year in Portland, was going to come to Western New York. Uh, so, you know, having gone, you know, players like Mewis and Dahlkamper and Williams and, and Hinkle and Hamilton, having gone through that experience, maybe for the first time in their soccer careers, showed them how things could be. So that when Riley turned it around in a year, there's a bond there that you know, they, they've seen both sides of the coin. And so there is a, a bond there with him, uh, that, that, that is, that was forged back in 15 and 16. Um, the other thing is that you have a large number of players who are still with the team and not with the team who owe a great deal of their soccer career success, both club and country, uh, to Riley's help and influence. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, if you want to get players to buy in, if they think that you're a part of their success or have helped build it, you know, you're going to get them to do what you want them to do. Uh, and the other thing is just the team culture and the way that he's found to keep this team uh, tight-knit and motivated both through on-field success uh, and some off-field obstacles that would have ruptured other locker rooms. And I know John Halloran talks about this all the time, but there's a way that he has gone about kind of getting past, you know, the the expectations of success and the invariable issues that might split locker rooms, the personality conflicts that might otherwise, you know, make make some locker rooms weary of each other. That hasn't been a problem, and he's found a way to navigate that. And I, and I have some idea of how he's done it. But you know, those are the three pillars. Uh, that, that have been constant, uh, throughout this, this, or this courage run. Equalizer podcast, Dan Law letter with Neil Morris. And Neil does have some work that appears on equalizersoccer.com. But Neil, where can uh, listeners find your, your main work on the courage? For the most part, it's WRAL sports fan, uh, out of Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay. So WRAL sports fan.com. 
uh, for Neil Morris. Neil, when uh, when Paul Riley, we we know we always joke about it when we get together as media about how you know how's he going to portray the team as the underdog now. You know they lose one game two years ago, and he was saying you know we're still the underdogs. Do the players actually buy into that, or do they just kind of laugh that off on the side? Because they certainly play like they're playing for their lives every week. Uh, if if there's such a thing, I think it's both. I, I think they understand. I think they have a, a, a sort of a, a amusement with, or even an amusement with, with Riley, as I call it, Riley's uh, fortune cookie wisdom that he throws out there. I think that, you know that there's a lot of that. Oh, that's Paul. You know, you you hear that somewhat. Oh, that's Paul. But I think at the core, I, I think that there is a buy-in to a certain level. You know, Steph Yang wrote a good article a couple of years ago getting into the philosophy of this whole underdogs thing. And there's a couple of motivating factors for why he does it. One is, you know, it's a matter of sort of defining expectations for the team. You know, if you, you know, if you, if you set the, if the expectations are, if you allow them to just be high, 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 it's going to burn your team out or there's, you know, if you come short on it, then it's, it's going to be a disappointment and that can feed, feed off of each other and, and, and snowball in a way. If you, if you try to take away the expectations, then you leave room for the team to find its, its, its success. I can't tell you the number of times over the years that Paul has, you know, said, you know, we don't talk about results or championships. We talk about you know, performance and the, and the process, which I roll my eyes and I go, okay, yeah, right, Paul. <laughs> um, because you know, it, he says that. And then whenever the, the team wins something, even if it's a regular season championship, they're, they're celebrating. I'm like, well, how do, how do they know? Um, right. So, so I do roll my eyes, but I will say that there has been on more than one occasion, uh, and Paul's not unique into in unique in this respect, but, I've had more than one occasion where the team will win a game and Paul will just come into the post game interview and just be spitting mad and just furious at the team's performance. And he'll tell them that. Uh, and, and most of the time they don't have to tell them that you can look at their faces until they were disappointed with how they played. Um, you know, one example I know is sort of last September when they went to sky blue and won two to one and Paul lit into them it was one of the worst performances they won the game but they were abysmal and he lit them up and within the next week they had beaten portland 6-0 and orlando 6-1 so you know he used that to to sort of say look this this is not it you know not what you can expect and at the same time i've i've there's been draws at home where i didn't think they were particularly great and I'll ask Paul about that after the, after the game and he'll look at me like, I thought we played really good. I thought we played well. We should have won the game. And so yeah, there is a little bit of performance, you know, uh, assessment that goes into that. So I don't think it's all, it's, a, it's not all bunk. Uh, and, and I think that's sort of a, that's a, that's a not so distant cousin with that whole underdog saying how it's more about, expectations. And and one other thing about the underdogs, you know, go to and Riley said this uh at the at the media day press conference before last year's championship. We were all sitting around and he had gone to the underdogs thing and you know Roy Dames had had great fun with it and rolled his eyes and everybody well, was chuckling. Up, they were sitting up there together for that one. 
It, well, that, but I'm talking about the one later where it was the uh, uh, at the uh, downtown Raleigh where you could go okay. station to station. And I and I saddled up to, to Riley and I went, "What are you doing with the underdogs thing again? What are we? What are you doing?" And he just looked at me and he was like, "Yeah, everybody's having a lot of fun with that." And I was like, "Well, I guess so." And he says, "Look." If they're not direct, if everybody's not directing their ire at me, they're going to find a way to direct it some other way at the rest of the players. So I'm going to be literally, or maybe not literally, but effectively the lightning rod. I'm going to be the one who's, who's taking heat for something. And if it's underdogs, fine, that'll be it. But if they're attacking me, <laughs> they're not attacking somebody else for something else, or they're not just going after the team saying, you know, you guys are always winning. You know, you're you're not so and so is not playing. I mean, whatever it may be, I'll be the lightning rod instead of my rest of my team who can just concentrate on their jobs. And I think that's another facet of it too. Yeah, I lived in New York through the Joe Torre Yankee years, and that was one of his parts of his genius was that he knew how and when to take it on his shoulders instead of turning it on the team. And I think that was a big reason in both those cases why those teams were. So successful. Neil, on the field, you mentioned O'Reilly retired, and she was playing at the end of the year because Matthias has a torn ACL. So that's the one spot where we look at on the courage. Nobody really knows who is going to be the right back. I've heard Haley Harbison. You know, Haley Mace is probably looked at as a center back. She's probably got 2021 for more playing time. But who's going to be the right back? And is there a spot that you think they could be exposed enough to give them trouble? Uh, well, I remember you thought O'Reilly was going to give be exposed and give them trouble for the playoffs last year. Uh, I thought it, I thought it was certainly their weak link, but they were good enough, and she was good enough that it didn't really matter, did it? You, you weren't. I, I remember you saying that at the time, and you were not wrong. Uh, and I think in, against certain teams, it would have been more trouble than it was. But in looking at the landscape, I I was pretty confident that 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 Hayo was going to do well, especially in the fullback role in that system. You know, they're missing O'Reilly. They're missing Zerboni, as I said before, which is another dynamic that's that's going to be interesting. Uh, apparently, Merritt Mathias is not going to be participating, uh, which is probably wise. Force her back after an ACL tier for a one-month tournament. Who's going to be the right back? So, I mean, you mentioned, you know, a lot of this comes from Jeff Kasuf's article this week on Equalizer. Uh you know, Riley is high on Haley Harbison, uh, who, frankly, he was a little high on her last year during preseason, and then she tore her ACL just before the, se- the season opener. Uh, she's been a, a dogged performer. I mean, she was back in training before the end of last year after an ACL tear. She didn't play, but she was back in camp before the end of the year. Uh, so her dedication is unquestioned, and although I have it, seen her in training this year or any scrimmages. I know they're, they're quite high on her. Uh, he's talked about using Kari Ricaro there. You know, we'll see about that. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he keeps trying to make Ricaro a thing, and I'm not so sure. Um, and there's other options, uh, potentially. Haley Mace, you mentioned, who I, I think if worst game's the worst, I think she, she could play well there. Although Paul Riley wants to play her in the attack badly and I and from the little I saw of her in training I understand why she has got a rocket for a boot uh, and you know that's the kind of thing that Riley falls in love with 
so I think from a, from a right back point of view, you're probably looking either Harvison or Mace or Ricaro or maybe Ryan Williams, who's played quite a bit of right back at, at time to time and could be a depth player. Um, so if he keeps the same box, that those are your most likely uh, uh, suspects. And that's that's not so bad, you know. That's if you've got if you've got Dahl Camper on that side, and if you've got some good cover from your your sixes and your eight, that will suffice. Um, one thing about that, <laughs> and this, some of this comes from having been around Paul for three years now. I guess it is. You know, he mentioned in, in Jeff's article this week that he's been thinking about another formation now. Sometimes Paul says that just to kind of throw everybody else off so they're not all just preparing for the box. But I know Paul has kept going to the box this year, frankly, because it's worked and nobody's figured it out. But I know, you know, the mad scientist Riley, he has wanted against all against all common sense <laughs> to be able to have a three back as a go to formation. He, he loves the three back. Uh, and the reason he hasn't done it is because he tried it several times in 2017 and they were disasters every time he tried it. But he, he kept bringing in players to try to find a formation or personnel that he could run a three back. We haven't seen it, thankfully, for the last couple of years. Now, I have not talked to Riley. Let me be clear about this. But with mate, with Matthias out, I wonder whether he's thinking about having a three back formation in his back pocket, which serves two purposes. It gives you, it allows you to just utilize the three defenders you already have, which is Dahlkamper, Urseg, and perhaps Daniels. But what it also does is gives you seven choices in the midfield and the forwards instead of six. So you've got your regulars of Williams, McDonald, Dabinia, Dunn, Buis, uh, O'Sullivan. So that's six. Uh, what Williams, McDonald, Dabinia, Hamilton, Mewis, and O'Sullivan. But then okay. you've got a, se- a seventh that could, you could use for Hamilton or Mace or Watt, who I thought was a dynamite draft selection. And Paul has finally warmed up on her apparently, uh, after being irked that she went to Australia, uh, earlier this year. But, but thank, <laughs> the pandemic delay cured that potential problem. But now I hear that he's fallen, fallen for her based on her performance in, in training, which I'm not surprised because I think she's a dynamite player. You can get a, you could, that's a way to get three really good players, at least get one of them on the field. And so, you know, especially in a, in a compressed tournament where Paul could just lay on the pressure against the, you know, some teams that maybe can't withstand it. Maybe he's not as worried about the, that team's attack and feels good about having three in the back. And where the teams are getting tired and he can just wear them out with seven attackers. Again, no one's told me this, but when he talks about having another formation and you talk about that right back issue, I wonder whether he's thinking about that. A couple of more questions for Neil Morris. We'll have Julia Poe to talk Orlando Pride in a couple minutes. Neil, with the, if they go four back, and I, I am not suggesting that I think this is a good idea, but I think it's a question that needs to be asked. They've got a player who won a World Cup as an outside back, Crystal Dunn. Is there a scenario where Riley says, you know what, my best option here is that Crystal Dunn is the best outside back 
after Jaylene Hinkle Daniels, and I've got a player back there? Uh, I certainly hope not. And yeah, I, I would love to talk to Paul right now about that because most of the time I would say 98% the answer is no. Uh, is there a scenario? Again, only because of you know, the, the, the Hamilton Mace factor. You know, if you've got, if he wants, to, if he wants to play a box, so to, for instance, and maybe he thinks Mason Dabinia could play at the ten. Uh, I could see it potentially if Crystal's okay moving to right back. It wouldn't be left back. I mean, she right. plays left back. She plays left back for the national team, but she's not moving Jalen Daniels. That's not happening. funny. She plays for the national team, but she's not the best left back on her club team. She's not, and it would be. Well, she's a better player, but she's not a better left back, and right. it would be it would be crazy to move Jalen Daniels out of that position, given how she how effective she is. Uh, and and frankly, I don't know. You know, I'm a huge Crystal Dunn fan. If, if you go back and go back and read my writings, and you know that I'm I'm a huge Dunn fan. Um, I don't know that right back is where she fits in Riley's system. And what and what I mean by that, not that she can't push forward into the attack. Lord knows she can do that. And not that she can't get back, you know, as her as fullbacks need to do, uh, track back to, to defend. She can do that. Uh but I haven't seen where she's you know the courage live and die with their crossing. And Dunn, Dunn can certainly boot the ball, but I don't know that she's the, I haven't seen evidence that she's the kind of crosser, uh, that the team needs or would be as, as good as some other options in that, in that I, scenario. I agree with everything you've said. I think she's way too good at the league level in midfield or up top, wherever she's playing to do it. But think about if they don't win and you've got, say, Hamilton on the bench and they don't win because their right back spot gets exposed and you've got, player to win the World Cup as an outside back not playing there. Just food for thought. You, you know who I'd be more likely to see it right back than done? Not that it's going to happen. Is Hamilton. Yeah, I she, mean, I'm not, she went back not, there in that 2017 final, right, for a little while? Absolutely. After she, everybody I mean, else it was got desperate, hurt. It was desperate times, desperate, desperate measures, but she was a choice. And I think before Ry, Paul Riley takes Crystal Dunn out of the attack <laughs> – you'll see her try to use Kristen Hamilton at right back first, if that has to happen. All right, last one. Uh, I I know that most people outside the courage realm are, you know, down with the courage. They don't like Riley's antics. You know, we know Hinkle Daniels is not a very popular player around the league, and the team wins a lot. I think it would be a shame if the run ended in this way. You know, pandemic, not a full season. You know, they're going to have to play – what is it, four knockout games or three knockout games instead of two? And, you know, I mean, they're going to be in one of the top eight teams. I think that goes without saying. But, is I mean, is this win or bust? Like, is there any scenario where they don't win and go home feeling good about themselves? Oh, I mean, if they don't win, they won't feel good about themselves. But that's just the team mentality. Does that mean this bust for the team? No. I mean, again, there's, pro- there's probably far more questions, and I don't want to get too deep into this. <laughs> Hopefully the club itself is healthy from year to year. But the team itself, as long as the, the, the club is around, uh, the, I think Paul and his mind, his brain trust, they, they see these year-to-year obstacles as the challenge. 
I mean, it, that's how they keep things fresh. We talk about the players, but there's also the coaches and the and the super, uh, you know, the, the the team front office. This is what keeps them engaged: is looking ahead a year or two and saying, "Okay, look, the, the expansion loss they thought they were going to have after this past off season, they were thinking about that a year before about how do we deal with this? Uh, what are our scenarios?" That's their challenge. That's what they whiteboard all the time. <laughs> and so I, I don't see it as a bust. I mean, some of, some of the advanced planning is already, I mean, the, you know, the trade to bring Haley Macy in was, was a, yeah, it's a smart move for now, but it's also a smart move for two to three years from now. Um, you know, Allie Watt, drafting someone like Allie Watt or, you know, bringing along someone like, like Harbison. Uh, those are all now moves and future moves. And so, no, I think if the NWCL is back next year and everything else being equal, I think the courage will be fine. Uh, the only question is whether the rest of the league is going to finally catch up, whether the efforts that teams like Portland have made and others will finally begin to, to gestate, uh, and, 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 and cause the courage trouble. But as far as them, everybody keeps saying, well, when the expansion draft happens, it's all going to go kaput. Well, I mean, if they lose one of their allocated players, they've got plenty of depth. <laughs> and the, for the players who are there want to be there. And eventually it's all going to, to stop just because that's the way life goes, whether it's salaries or players who may want to play somewhere else because of personal reasons. You know, there is that aspect of it without getting too deep into it, but all of the things being equal, I don't, I don't see whether there's any intrinsic reason why it, why it's this year and that's it for the courage. Neil Morris, you can find his work on WRALsportsfan.com every now and again on equalizersoccer.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with Julia Poe to discuss the Orlando Pride on the Equalizer podcast. Hey everybody, Jeff Kasouf here, founder of The Equalizer. Thank you for listening to The Equalizer podcast. Wanted to let you know that we also have another podcast that I host called Kickin' Back. Kickin' Back is a one-on-one style interview type podcast where we talk to players and coaches from the women's game and get to know them a little bit better and talk about some of the moments that define their careers. So after you're done listening to this podcast, which please finish this one first, Head over, check out Kicking Back. Make sure you don't miss it. We've got interviews with some of the top personalities in the game right now and many names that you know from previous years in women's soccer and many more interviews to come. So check us out on any platform. The one you're listening to right now also has Kicking Back. And we'll get you back to the Equalizer podcast now. Back on the Equalizer podcast, Dan Lalletta. I'll be joined by Julia Poe in just a moment. Just a reminder that if you have not yet, please check us out on the web at EqualizerSoccer.com or for premium content, EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. And we're looking forward to bringing you some really great coverage once the NWSL Challenge Cup begins on Saturday. Also, a reminder to please rate and review the Equalizer podcast Today, Julia Poe from the Orlando Sentinel joins us, and Julia, we're taking the opposite side of the table now. The Courage trying to figure out how to hang on to their legacy 
the pride are trying to figure out how to kind of create a legacy. Uh, you've been around the team a little bit. Uh, Mark Skinner has been not shy about the fact that he has, you know, he's under the gun this year. This is pandemic, probably not really the best thing for uh, building a team. But what's your what's your vibe so far on how training is going and how this team is feeling heading into Utah? Yeah, definitely. First off, thanks so much for having me on. Um, you definitely got it right. Mark is very aware of that pressure. Um, I think any coach would have to kind of rationally understand that after a season like how the Pride season went last year. Um, but I think, you know, when you look at even though it's been a shortened time, even though the pandemic really did get in the way of a lot of training, I think it, when you look at the personnel that the Pride will have available going into Utah, it really is so different than what they were looking at for the majority of last season between the World Cup, between injuries, pregnancies, breast cancer diagnosis. It Last season was kind of one fluke after another in some ways, and I definitely don't think that anyone on the coaching staff or any of the players think that those they're not willing to let those excuses kind of rest and be the only reason for those results last season. But I definitely do think that this is going to be a much more complete looking team and roster going into Utah than ever really was able to be on the pitch last year. Now, I always thought that they would play a lot of games last season. They would play their opponents tough. But as soon as something went awry, they would go completely off the rails and weren't able to recover. And Skinner didn't, wouldn't like completely admit that, but he didn't exactly deny it either. So there's a bit of a mentality scenario with the pride. Um, how do you get through that when your preseason was interrupted and now you've got four games to get into a knockout round and then, you know, you got to win three more after that? Definitely. I mean, Mark definitely, especially by the end of the year, fully understood that um, in the off season when I spoke with him, he would talk a lot about kind of the soft underbelly of the team where they would look tough. They have a lot of good weapons, but if you hit them wrong and you hit them in one of their weaknesses, then they just kind of crumbled last season, exactly like, like what you were talking about. Um, and the team captain, Ashlyn Harris talked a lot about them kind of lacking that mental toughness um, where if one mistake, you know, teams make mistakes you let in a goal, something happens. But last year, the Pride, if a mistake happened, they were down. They, they were out. They just could not quite bounce back from it. So I think one of the big things that Skinner and Harris and a lot of the members of the team have looked at in the offseason is relying on that veteran experience and positioning players in a place where they can use veteran experience to kind of lead a team. And that is something that, again, when you go back to kind of the totality of the roster going into Utah, if they have all of their veteran pieces, this is going to be a team that's going to be kind of uniquely set up just by how much World Cup, Olympic, and other high-level tournament experience a lot of these players have. You have a lot of international players that have been in this position before and are going to be able to have kind of that mental toughness and that dexterity that if they get down, if they're in a tough spot, they're going to be able to bounce back a lot. And I think that you kind of see with some of the acquisitions that they made with uh, bringing in Ali Riley, bringing in Emily Sonnet into that back line. Skinner's really looking to kind of fortify from the back out 
And I think any coach whose team allowed more than 50 goals in one season, I think they'd kind of focus in on the defense first. So you see that that leadership and that mental toughness is going to start from Harris in the back all the way out through that back line, which now gets Presley back. And then again, it has Riley and Sonnet and Krieger and Zdorsky just kind of having all of that veteran leadership from the back out. I think that's kind of what they're going to be looking to build out of going into the Challenge Cup. All right, let's talk Sonnet, Emily Sonnet, for a moment. I think she had a really fascinating 2019 because she was a World Cup champion, but I thought she was below average for the Thorns. Now -hmm. she's in a new environment, but where is she going to play? Because you can make a case that she's a center back. I know that, you know, Jill Ellis kind of tried to force feed her on the right. I've also heard coaches that think she's a world-class defensive midfielder. So where does Emily Sonnet fit in? tactically on this team. So what's interesting about that is that I think we're going to see her in multiple positions in Utah. Um, When Mark was kind of looking at who he wanted to bring to Utah and how they wanted to set up the team going into Utah, he talked a lot about he wants players to be able to move in and out of different positions. And Emily, on the other hand, has also talked about that. She definitely can play some defensive mid. She can play out on the wing. She can fill in in the center I think with the personnel that the Pride have, because some of their most experienced best defenders are center backs, um, you know, between Zdorsky and Presley, and then even Krieger has played in that center back position before. I don't know if we'll necessarily see Sonnet in that center back position just because they're going to want to put that veteran experience in the core of the back line and let that lead from there. But I definitely could see her playing up a little bit more in that defensive midfield position especially with Riley on the opposite side. Both of those players have that ability to defend really well, but then also get up and kind of feed uh, your Martas, your Claire Emsleys, some of those other tools that they have on the attack. I don't know if you've gotten to speak to Emily Sonnet at all since she joined the Pride, but is there a sense that she feels like she has something to prove? Definitely, yeah. I I spoke to her um, about a month before the season, the preseason was about to start, and – That was kind of what she kept coming back to, kept reiterating, is just she wants to prove that she can play anywhere. And she kind of kept coming back to she's a player that always just wants to be there for a coach. So if a coach needs whatever whatever a coach needs, she wants to be that player that can fill in and fit that. And I think that you kind of see that eagerness and that, you know, especially with the Olympics moved, uh, it being a smaller roster for the national team next summer, I think that she's definitely a player that is looking to go out and use every club game as an opportunity to prove herself both at the club level and then also at the national team level. Now, that being said, with no Olympics this year, no U.S. friendlies or camps in sight that we're aware of in a condensed tournament, is the pressure off Skinner a little bit for players like Sonnet? And Krieger that he doesn't have to worry about, well, national team wants them at this position, so I've got to try to stick them there. Is it a little bit more freedom in that sense? You know what? That's an interesting question. I've never talked with Mark about that. Um, I've had a lot of – he's a great interview, and we've had a lot of long conversations, but I don't know if that has necessarily ever come up. Um, he is a coach who really wants to help the development of his players at the national team level as well as at the club level. So I could see that being part of his decision-making, but 
also knowing his eagerness and the hunger that he and all of the team, quite honestly, have going into this season. I don't think when it came down to it, if he thought that a player was best fit to pay, play a position, I don't think any outside factors would really affect that. They're, they want to win. Um, they didn't win enough last season, and they're really hungry for it this season. So I'm not sure if that would have been a factor. But again, I really haven't talked with Mark enough about that to know uh, to have a, a ton of experience on his position on that. Dan Lawletta with Julia Poe of the Orlando Sentinel. And Julia is also a good Twitter follow. What's your Twitter handle? Because I don't have that off the top of my head. Yeah, it's jpoe24601. Extra points to people who get the theater reference. Um, a lot of people think it's just a random string of numbers, but I promise it's not. Okay, no extra credit for me. <laughs> um, that's Poe, P-O-E. But you fooled me with your Twitter feed into thinking that you had been at training when you actually were just posting uh, – photos from the pride who were really good about sending out stuff after training. Uh, but uh, check out Julia's work at the Orlando Sentinel and uh, at her Twitter account that apparently has a theater reference in the uh, Twitter handle. Um, Claire Emsley, you mentioned, I was very impressed with her in her little cup of coffee at the end of 2019. How important is she and what, uh, where do you think she'll, she'll fit in? Well, I personally think that Claire could be one of the most exciting players in the NWSL if she has the right personnel around her. Um, I mean, anyone who saw her play for Scotland in the World Cup last summer, you know, they, you saw that talent, uh, just kind of that fire, the creativity that she has both on and off the ball. I think last summer it was really difficult because she had a very condensed period of time to come in, get used to the humidity and just the new team and everything, and then try to get up to full speed and try to get in with a new team. And she didn't really have the type of striker that she needed to feed to be able to really be at her full potential. Um, in that winger position, she and Marta together are just phenomenal to watch. They had some passages of play last season where you could just see that they think the same way and they kind of create in the same way. But both of them never really had that player to connect with in the box. So Claire would be sending in some of these incredible crosses into the box and they just weren't really connecting with anyone who had the finishing finesse. So I think that that's where having Sydney LaRue back, bringing in some of these new players, and then eventually if Alex Morgan does, you know, return like she has said that she – you know, is thinking about doing if there's a season after the tournament, I think that you could really see Claire come up to her potential, but it really is contingent on if she has some good targets in the box, because without it, she's kind of having to create a lot on her own. And that's just not quite the type of player that she is. So it, it doesn't let her kind of get into her comfort zone and create the way that she, I think she would like to. What about Taylor Korniak? The Pride made all those convoluted trades on draft day, wound up with Korniak at number three. You know, as every coach does, the draft number three, Mark Skinner said, well, that was our top choice all along. But again, it's a real short window here to prove yourself. And I think scoring goals is probably the hardest thing to do as a young player in the league. So uh, what's your sense of how Korniak has looked so far? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I was only able to be there in person for the first week of preseason, but I was able to speak with Taylor during that time, talked a bit with Mark about her since then. And they are actually looking to kind of convert her into that target position, 
which is a little bit different. She played some target, but mostly uh, mostly mid when she was in college uh, in Colorado. And so she's looking to kind of convert into a new position. I think if she'd had a full season, that would be a much easier transition to make. But that's, I mean, that's tough to do in a tournament. You have so few games. I'm not sure if they're going to play her as a forward or if they're going to keep her in her comfort zone in midfield, just given the condensed you know, schedule and everything. But I do think that if she's given time to grow, I mean, she is She's very talented. She, uh, her, obviously her physicality, her athleticism, she's the tallest player in the NWSL. She's going to be able to kind of stand out and be really important, especially on those set pieces. But I think it just comes down to whether or not she's had enough time to kind of unpack and download some of those new things that they're going to be asking of her. And that's going to be very much a touch and go, you know, how much Mark asks, what she's able to deliver. Uh, but something interesting is that Sydney LaRue really has taken her under her wing since she arrived, like since the first day that she was in town in Orlando. And she's been kind of mentoring her and helping her with that transition. So I think seeing the way that the two of them can play together is going to be really interesting. And if they can get that dynamic going, that could be pretty lethal for the pride up top. This won't go down well with a lot of the listeners, but tactically, are they maybe better off without Morgan in there with, you know, considering LaRue and Korniak and Marta and Emsley, is Morgan kind of the player that pulls that apart some in some ways? Oh, I would say the exact opposite. Uh, Mark specifically recruited and brought on Claire to feed Alex. Uh, that was the purpose for bringing Claire in. He felt like they needed that winger who could connect with her Um and they wanted to have different types of forwards. Um, so they wanted to have, you know, someone like Sidney LaRue who can break behind a back line. And then Alex obviously can have some more of that hold up play. And Taylor is more being, she's kind of being molded right now as someone who can come up and kind of play secondary behind Alex, who can fill in for her when she's, you know, on national team duty or, just can come in and fill in for her. I mean, in a tournament structure, that would obviously be helpful. But I think that this, the way that they're constructing this attack around with Taylor as a piece in it is exactly how they would construct it with Alex. Um, Obviously some things would be different because Alex Morgan is Alex Morgan, but Mark has been very purposeful about creating that attack. And Alex has always definitely been a part of that, especially when it comes to Claire's acquisition. Now, unlike the courage we did in the first segment, a lot of unknowns on this Pride team. Is there a player that you have either observed yourself or heard through back channels and whatnot that might stand out that most people right now have never heard of, but that we will be very familiar with in two or three weeks? I cannot wait to see Kanye Plummer play in the NWSL um, just because of the person she is, the player that she is. Uh, she captained the Jamaican national team last summer so in the World Cup. So a lot of people are probably somewhat familiar with her, but I don't know how much playing time she will have. I don't know if the tournament will necessarily be that springboard for her just because there are so many defenders and she is playing defender for the pride. But as soon as she starts getting a lot of minutes, I think a lot of people are going to be really excited by her, just her style of play and the way that she kind of approaches things on and off the field. 
I'm, I'm really excited to be able to cover her and to just see her play. Um, but there's, there's a lot of players like that on the pride this year. I mean, Allie Riley being back playing soccer stateside is obviously very exciting. And, um, I think a lot of people also have a lot of excitement of seeing Presley and LaRue, you know, after their absences last year, seeing them come back and seeing what form they are in and kind of what fire they have lit in them. I think that's going to be really enjoyable. So there, there's a lot to be excited about with this pride team, even though there are a lot of questions, obviously, especially after last season, I think there's just as much to kind of pique people's interest. And they're definitely going to be a must watch on that first game day to kind of see what they look like coming out of the gates. A couple more questions with Julia Poe from the Orlando Sentinel. The Orlando pride will kick off against the Chicago red stars on Saturday, courage and thorns also on Saturday. That's the NWSL challenge cup. We've talked back line. You mentioned Kanye Plummer and a bunch of other players, and Al Skinner wants it to be versatile. Do you have a guess as to what the opening match back four would be? I I do not necessarily have a great prediction. I'm also just always historically horrible at lineup predictions <laughs> for some reason, um, just one of my weak spots. But I definitely th- would not be surprised to see the pride bringing out, maybe not in the first game, but in this first round, would not be surprised to see them coming out in really defensive formations just because of last, you know, last season, especially going up, you know, against the courage uh, early in the first round. I definitely would not be surprised to see that their entire roster skews very defensive heavy where you can bring in a lot of players uh, in the back line and then also in defensive mid just to kind of shore that up because last season, a lot of the, the goals that the pride allowed, they weren't even necessarily coming from, I mean, they, they allowed some, you know, typical standard goals that you're always going to let in, but there were also just a lot of mistakes and miscommunications that allowed those blunders to happen really early in the game. So I think Mark is going to be looking to bring in kind of that experienced set of players in the back line that are going to be able to come in and just be calm and not have those jitters. So I definitely would expect seeing some of those, you know, obviously you're going to have Krieger. Uh, she's made it pretty clear that she's going to be there. Um, and then as many of those experienced defenders out on the back line as possible, just to kind of give them that sense of calm and clarity as they enter the first couple of these games, so that they don't allow those blunders to sink them early. Now I'm looking at the schedule here, and it's it's brutal. You open with the Red Stars, then it's four days later Portland, and four days later North Carolina, and four days later Sky Blue. So there's never a full week of rest. It is a high altitude without a lot of time for adjustment because it's only a few days ahead of time. I mean, they, Pride could theoretically play very well and be 0 and 3 going into that Sky Blue game. What what what's the what's the p what is the goal? What would be a good month or preliminary round for the pride. I think for them, I mean, with the, with the way that this tournament is set up, it's just get into the knockout round, you know, and understanding that they're going to, they're not necessarily going to be looking at this. This is something that Mark talked to me about a couple weeks ago is understanding that they're not going to be necessarily looking at these like beautiful, tactically wonderful games. There's, this is going to be gritty people are going to be tired, they're going to be frustrated, they're going to be, you know, still kind of knocking the cobwebs off. So I think understanding that 
they're going to need to come in there obviously hungry for a win, but willing to do what it takes to scrape and grit out a draw where they can. And, you know, going in and making sure that they understand that as long as they get to the knockout round, anything can happen from there. But in these first couple games, I mean, that first round, I think, is going to be brutal for everyone. Obviously, the Pride got the toughest slate, but I think it's going to be pretty tough for everyone to come in, try to adjust to altitude, and then immediately just get thrown into those games. So I think leaning heavily on their rotation, this is a deep team, especially in the defense, and kind of understanding that they can rely on that rotation is going to help them a lot. But it's it's going to be, for everyone, but especially for the Pride, those first four games are going to be a lot focused just on being able to grit things out game to game and get, you know, escape each one with points. Just, I mean, and that's true for any team. This is just kind of a, a brutal way to get welcomed back to soccer after a couple months. Yeah, it sure is. Can you see a scenario, Julia, where that third game against the Courage, Skinner decides to play kind of a B team and just get ready for the inevitability that they will likely need three points against Sky Blue on the ninth and give the core players that week off think and realizing that you could really play well against the Courage and they'll run you ragged, you'll wind up with no points and everyone's tired anyway. I think it'll depend how those first two games go. Um, and again, I, I don't, I don't normally kind of try to predict how that's going to go just because it is so reliant on the variables of those first two games. You know, if they, uh, if the pride come out and they pull wins out of the first two games, then you're looking at a completely different scenario than if they lose the first two. So I think it really, we're just going to have to see how it goes once they're in Utah. And also it's really hard to predict since we still don't entirely know what rosters to expect from everyone. Um, so I think that's also just kind of the added, you know, I, th- I think most of the beat writers kind of know who to expect from their teams, but nothing is 100% solid until we see those rosters. So it's just, it's it's hard it's hard to say, but I definitely think that there's a lot of scenarios, and Mark is definitely going to be very calculated in the way that he uses those players, especially knowing, like I said, that he has some of that depth from some of these younger players that he has been able to recruit and bring in. I think you answered this in part earlier, but tactically, uh, do you think he goes into these games a little bit different, you know, whereas if this were an opening day against the Red Stars, you could do it one way and take your lumps, even if you lose big, uh, but you really can't afford to do that. So you think tactically he plays this a little different than he would have if he had the 24 games? Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I think there's a lot. Mark is, you know, he's, he's a real student of the game and he, as any coach is, but he, he really loves working on these different tactical setups and these different personnel changes. And I think he, he really works on specifically approaching each game differently. So just the fact that this is a tournament game, I mean, it's going to be so different than if it was just regular season. And especially because everyone on the team knows what is at stake. I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it's a completely different scenario. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see because again, I, not a lot of, I mean, this has never happened before. No one's ever had to come in to what should be the start of the regular season and then just bam, be in the middle of, you know, a high stakes tournament. So it's, it's going to be a definitely a very different approach than if we were just starting the regular season on Saturday. Last one I've asked 
almost everyone I've spoken to about this, and most have downplayed it. The altitude, I feel like the pride maybe will have the biggest culture shock just from a climate standpoint, going from Orlando to the high altitude. Any concern internally or for yourself about how they'll handle the altitude? Yeah, I I don't think I'm necessarily concerned, like from a safety standpoint. I think, uh, you know, the trainers and everyone are going to take care of them, but I would never downplay altitude. I mean, I've, I've heard especially some of the Australian players on the Pride have joked about, you know, you get into like the 30th minute of a game in Utah and your your hands are on your knees and you're really sucking wind. I mean, it's 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 difficult. I think that the Pride, I don't really know if it's entirely applicable, but I mean, the the environment that they play in here is also brutal. I mean, it's it is tough playing in the humidity out here and they're out training in it every morning. Even when they do their 8am trainings, you really can't escape it. I mean, it's just, it's brutal out here. Um, so I definitely think they're going from one kind of tough playing environment to another. So they're going to be used to that level of adversity, but yeah, I mean, it's no holds barred there. It is going to be a challenge. And especially since the pride, you know, they're getting in on Wednesday, and then they play on Saturday. That's not a that's not a fast or that's not a slow turnaround at all. I mean, you you have to get up and in it and ready to go pretty quickly. So it'll be a challenge, but that's going to be pretty even for everyone. I mean, most people aren't training at altitude. I think only Rain and uh, Utah are really going to have you know similar climates that there are environments that they're training in. So a lot of their opponents are going to be in the same place, and will just be how quickly they can adapt to that and then also how they can use their subs to make sure that you know if anyone's actually hurting they're they're giving them a leg up julia poe check out her work at orlandosentinel.com and also what's that twitter handle again uh jpo24601 also thanks to julia thanks also to neil morris and if you're looking to follow neil on twitter it's by neil morris n-e-i-l-m-o-r-r-i-s Thanks to Julia and Neil, and we'll come back next week. We will be right in the heart of the NWSL Challenge Cup. We'll be breaking down actual soccer games as they will begin on Saturday. My name is Dan Lawletta. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Equalizer Podcast. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.